The Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory is an ethically questionable part of the shipyard's history. Lindsay Dillon, a professor at UC Santa Cruz, has written extensively about the shipyard. It was a toxic industrial shipyard, and there was a naval radiation laboratory there for 20 years um, that was involved in nuclear um, weapons testing in the Marshall Islands. And that radiation laboratory's mission was to kind of come up with measures that could protect the military in the case of atomic defense. So it was the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory. In the late 1940s, shipyard workers had to sandblast and scrub radioactive Navy ships that had been hauled to San Francisco after being used in atomic bomb tests. That left toxic waste in the soil at Hunter's Point. And it left the workers scrubbing off the ships exposed to radiation. Welcome to part two of Sandblasted at the Shipyard, a story about San Francisco's secret Cold War nuclear lab and toxic legacy. I'm your host, Rebecca Bowe. Part of defense was actively produce, like the production of toxic waste, which it left in the landscape, but also like all these different experiments, right? So in this effort of defending the nation in the future atomic war, I created the disaster that today the Navy is trying to clean up. Part of that history is also the different ways that workers and residents were unwittingly and systematically exposed to small levels of radiation that it's really hard to prove whether, like, the health consequences of that is just that kind of causality in a a toxicological framework is pretty elusive. As part of its research, the laboratory tested on animals. But animals weren't the only living beings the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory exposed to radiation. Shipyard workers scrubbing off the radioactive vessels were exposed too. They were closely monitored by medical scientists to find out how much radiation they were absorbing on a daily basis. Documenting their ongoing exposure was a way for military scientists to collect data to establish radiation health and safety standards. A few years ago, my colleagues and I started diving into declassified government records produced by the lab. These documents are kept at the National Archives in San Bruno. According to a 1946 memo, the lab planned to conduct suitable experiments to see if safety protocols for working on irradiated vessels should be adjusted. But go back even farther in time and you realize how the source of this contamination is linked with human rights abuses and environmental destruction halfway across the world. Much of the nuclear waste in the soil in San Francisco actually originated in the Marshall Islands, where the U.S. military detonated 67 nuclear bombs between 1946 and 1958. The first Pacific nuclear test was Operation Crossroads in July of 1946. The Navy exploded two atomic bombs, a Bikini Atoll, a remote lagoon in the Marshall Islands. But first, it forced 167 islanders to leave. Tell them, please that uh, the United States government now wants to turn this great destructive power 
into something for the benefit of mankind. That's a recording of U.S. military officials asking indigenous Marshall Islanders to leave Bikini Atoll and giving them virtually zero information about what was about to happen. Now they have heard of our plan for their evacuation. Will you ask King Judah to get up and tell us now what his people think and if they're willing to go? According to anthropologist Holly Barker, who wrote about nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands, Judah replied that if the United States needed the islands and the lagoon, the Pekinians would lend it to them. At the time, they viewed the U.S. as friends and allies. Half a century later, Anderson Gibas, the present-day mayor of Bikini and Kili, the island that the Marshallese living on Bikini were relocated to, addressed members of Congress. This was at a 2018 committee hearing. There were 167 of our elders that were relocated from Bikini in 1946 <coughs> to Kili Island. Today, there's about 16 of them alive whom have no health plan and cannot move because of illness and age. Mayor Jibas said seven of his elder family members were from Bikini. They were made to leave to make way for nuclear explosions. Some of the bombs vaporized entire islands. Our ancestors moved from the beautiful Bikini Atoll so that 23 thermonuclear bombs could be detonated, poisoning and vaporized three of our islands. That has been our experience. Bikini to and must live with the consequences, removal and displacement. Nobody knows these consequences better than we do. Certainly no agencies in Washington, D.C. With all due respect, neither does the U.S. Congress. Now and in the future, we know how to survive the hardships of life on a rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And we know the beauty of our islands in the Pigeony, where we long to live and raise our children. But as he told the committee chair, Senator Lisa Murkowski, at the hearing, the Department of Energy had found it was still too dangerous to return. And sea level rise from climate change is quickly threatening the island they were relocated to. Madam Chair, we cannot go back to Bikini because it's, it's filled with radiation, CCM-137. Stronium-190 is filled. We cannot live there, according to the studies of DOE, who stay there. But we cannot live on Kelly Island. It's only three-fourths of a mile wide and long. It's, it's, we consider a prison. There is not enough uh, resources. Back in 1946, after the evacuation of Bikini Atoll, the Navy assembled more than 100 target ships in the lagoon. Then it set off two plutonium bombs, each with a force equivalent to the bomb dropped on Nagasaki the year before. The Navy's tests also affected its own personnel. Observation ships were sent in to witness the test detonations. Everybody is told to get out on the flight deck and stand at attention and face the blast. Five, four, three, two, one... An airplane dropped the first nuke. Radio operator Arthur Fortin described the next blast, this one from the waters below. The blast sent a 90-foot wave into the air. It rained down onto the ships and coated everything in a mix of fission byproducts. And there was a big, big splash, a spray, I guess you could call it, instant fog. 
Yeah, yeah I think they should have told them what was going to happen. You know, just going on a test, you know, that's all we knew. But we didn't know we were going to be in it. Fortin, who told his story 40 years later to researcher Sandra Marlowe, was one of thousands of Army and Navy veterans exposed to radiation during the atomic testing era. At the time of Operation Crossroads, atomic energy was a new phenomenon. After the tests, the Navy suddenly had a radioactive fleet on its hands, and it wasn't prepared to clean it up. So what did the Navy do? This is why you're here. They decided to bring 79 of those contaminated ships to Hunter's Point. And they tried over a period of years to decontaminate these ships. That's Daniel Hirsch, president of Committee to Bridge the Gap, an environmental watchdog organization. In a presentation to shipyard residents in November of 2018, he explained how the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory had tried to bring the ships to San Francisco to decontaminate them. And they brought back to Hunter's Point vast quantities of nuclear weapons debris for analysis, filled with plutonium, uranium, fission products, activation products. They also then had licenses for vast amounts of radioactive materials of their own. Winds carried the sandblast throughout the shipyard, and radioactive fuel from the irradiated ships was burned in power plants on site. Hirsch said the radiation lab participated in nearly every Pacific nuclear test conducted in the 1950s. Now, you all know the fundamentals of radiation. You cannot neutralize radioactivity by physical means. All you can do is move it. So decontamination of these ships meant getting the radioactivity off of the ships onto Hunter's Point. Today, the Navy is still working on cleaning up this toxic waste. I asked about the toxic materials when I sat down with Hirsch for a separate interview. These are very toxic materials. The ones that they've admitted to be concerned about, that they say are present, are cesium-137, which is a powerful gamma emitter, meaning it gives to your entire body, even if it's outside you. It has about a 30-year half-life, which means it's dangerous for about 600 years. Strontium-90 which is a bone seeker, meaning it concentrates in bone, irradiating bone for long periods of time, gets into your body and stays in you as part of your bone for decades, and it causes bone cancer and leukemia. Plutonium, one of the most dangerous materials on Earth, a millionth of an ounce if inhaled will cause cancer with a virtual 100% statistical certainty. It's astonishingly dangerous in extremely small quantities, and it has a half-life of 24,000 years. It's dangerous for half a million years. Throughout the Cold War decontamination efforts, the U.S. government denied that the contaminated ships posed any danger. It even made propaganda films in response to fears about the dangers of radiation. Here's audio from one about the USS Independence, one of the contaminated ships brought to San Francisco after the tests. The independence got the attention of heavy thinkers everywhere. Really, Claire, I just can't imagine why they brought that boat back. From what I've heard, it's very dangerous. Indeed it is. It's um, contaminated. And I've read that that contamination simply never dies away. In keeping with the sexist attitude of the times, at this point the two women are shown almost causing a car crash. Really, it's a menace to public health and safety. The charges brought against the independents were like false death reports, exaggerated. 
A quick post-mortem on the bikini tests shows why. The target vessels were old, obsolete. They had been earmarked as expendable. Some were eliminated by the tests. Others were sunk later because of the structural damage they had sustained. Instead of being sent to the bottom at Bikini, the Mighty Eye was given a stay of execution and taken back to the States. She served not only for radioactive study, but helped explode the myth that contamination is an everlasting hazard. In 1951, the Navy intentionally sunk the Independence near the Farallon Islands, about 25 miles west of San Francisco. But before this happened, the ship was loaded up with radioactive waste, not just from Hunter's Point, but also from other Bay Area research labs. The radioactive ship remains at the bottom of the ocean to this day. So far, the cleanup project has taken 30 years and cost more than a billion dollars. The Navy's responsible for remediating the polluted land to make it safe to build housing. And according to the Navy today, the Hunters Point shipyard is safe for people who live and work there. Derek Robinson, with the Navy's Base Realignment and Closure Program, said so when I interviewed him at a community meeting in 2018. There's an average radiation exposure that everyone gets. You get it... Um, from the food you eat and the water you drink and the air you breathe, and that's natural. So yes, yes, there's, there's a safe level. And people who live in Hunters Point or work here, that, that's the level that they're being exposed to currently. But in 2014, it had come out that government contractors had faked soil samples at the shipyard. That spurred a new round of testing after reports of falsified data made the news, as in this broadcast from NBC Bay Area. So is it prime real estate or a health hazard? Hunter's Point in San Francisco is scheduled to become one of the biggest developments in the nation filled with homes and shops. We've obtained an internal report from a contractor exposing how it mishandled radioactive soil and falsified data. The station revealed that technicians hired by Tetratech EC, a U.S. Navy contractor, had committed fraud. The technicians had provided fake soil samples from an area where Tetratech was tasked with remediating radioactive contamination. Anthony Smith spent years as a field technician with the crews at the center of the scandal. Sometimes we had wire respirators, Tyvex, rubber boots, rubber gloves, and uh, do some of the work that we had to do. It depended on how the level of radiation was and what we had to do. Smith later came forward as a whistleblower charging that Tetratech had altered data under pressure to get the job done. And so uh, about every building you see on this base, not all of them, but a bunch of them that we surveyed and cheated at, changing the data. Because the instrument takes a uh, reading every six seconds, so you're talking about in a day's time, you're talking about thousands and thousands of counts of data that they was changing to uh, lower them down to uh, where they'd pass. You know, anything over background a time and a half is considered elevated. So you lower the number down to fit the background. So if it read, if it read 15,000, which is elevated, we drop the number down to 7,000 or 8,000. That's how you cheated with the numbers. The Tetratech scandal has eroded trust in the Navy, prompted lawsuits, and caused delays. What's more, some advocates have pointed out that the majority of the base was never even tested at all. 
And this has only inflamed tensions with neighbors who don't trust the Navy or the housing developer. You could hear those tensions surfacing at this community meeting in 2017. These poor folks are up standing here being forced to tell y'all another lie. I think you need to know what a lie sounds like. When they tell you that this stuff is safe and that there is no problems with the soil samples and that the Navy says this, this is a lie. That's Marie Harrison, an environmental justice advocate from San Francisco's Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood. Harrison passed away in 2019, and her memorial service at a Bayview church highlighted her role in trying to address environmental contamination that created health hazards in her community. In that tape, she was speaking at a meeting hosted by the U.S. Navy about the ongoing cleanup of toxic contamination in the soil at the Hunters Point shipyard. The meeting got chaotic as community members pressed the Navy for answers. That party is over. And you don't live here. You don't live here. Experience the cancer stuff that's going around, and our family's dying. We, as residents, are stepping up right now, face to face, to let you know: stop lying to us, because we're the ones dying. You guys don't live here. We do, and our families live here. Still, the Navy has maintained that despite all this, the Hunters Point shipyard should be considered safe. Here's Navy Representative Derek Robinson once more. So they're being exposed to just the general background? General background level, same as any other location in San Francisco, practically. But maybe elevated slightly? I would actually say that that the work that we've done has, has lowered it overall. You know, the things that I know people are concerned about their own health and their family, and, and my job really is to make sure this property is safe before we, we, we get rid of it. And, and the gold standard is what I allow my family to come here, the people that I'm most protective of in the world. And the answer is, is absolutely yes. It absolutely is. For Michelle Pierce, the second-generation advocate for a proper cleanup in Hunters Point, News of the Tetratech fraud was no surprise. Mistrust of the Navy is already the default. We're the residents. We live here. We live here over multiple generations, right? So we've been doing this since forever. The nature of the military is that people come and go. The traditional thing has been, oh, these are low education, low skills people, so they don't know what they're talking about. They're just paranoid. You know, they saw something, they misinterpreted it, they don't know. And that's what keeps happening. These are people that have been in this movement for some of them for 40 years now, right? They know what's going on. for joining us for the second episode of Sandblasted at the Shipyard. I want to thank the Bayview residents and advocates who agreed to be interviewed for this story, the technical experts who made time to share their knowledge, and the team members who made this possible. Megan Moorer, Mel Baker, Laura Wenis, and Jacob Nassim helped with audio engineering and sound design. Stacy Carter and Chris Roberts provided archival audio and photographic research. Michael Stoll and Laura Wenis edited the series, and Bika Kandasami provided fact-checking, and Justin Bentonen assisted with gathering sound. A special thanks to the Breathe Network for Racial, Environmental, and Climate Justice for its support to complete this series. 
I'm podcast creator and host, Rebecca Bowe. I work at a nonprofit environmental organization, and I want to make it clear that this story is unrelated to that work and does not express the views of my employer. In our next episode, we'll look at the nationwide phenomenon of human radiation experiments that occurred at about the same time the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory was operating. The right thing to have done was to say, this is radioactive iodine, it's not going to hurt you, would you mind if we gave it to you? So if you are about to put a foreign substance in a person's body, the least you can do is ask.